0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes.
2: The bride has been injured and injury doesn't always show up the way you think it will. And it doesn't in her. She's looking for family. Family doesn't manifest or show up the way you think it will. And in my life, it hasn't. And so in addition to, you know, the portals of, of trauma and friendship, I would also say I'm always looking to construct alternative ideas of family as well. I'm Jordan
3: Kissner author of the essay collection Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. marie Helen Bertino wrote one of my favorite books of 2020. Uh, and it's kind of a hard book to summarize neatly. It's one of the reasons why it was one of my favorite books of the year, but it makes uh, describing it a little bit harder. Um, but I'll do my best. Parakeet opens with the protagonist, the bride, who works as a biographer for people with traumatic brain injury and who is one week away from her wedding on Long Island. And she's visited unexpectedly by her dead grandmother in the form of a bird who shits on her wedding dress, tells her not to marry the fiance, and Orders her to go find her estranged sibling. The book is what you might call surrealist. Uh, and one of the things that's so interesting about Marie's writing is the way that surrealism, or what she called in our conversation, superrealism, is actually a way of realistically capturing aspects of the human experience, like the way time feels when you're experiencing trauma or love, or the way the mind experiences depression or human connection or healing. Marie, who was also once a biographer for people with traumatic brain injury, came ready to talk about thresholds or um, portals, which is the word that she likes to use, and to talk about time and transformation and trauma, the mind, and to my surprise and total delight, this um, monoclonal aspen forest in Utah that we've both written about, which happens to be the world's largest living organism. And with that, I'm thrilled to give you Marie-Hélène Bertino.
2: My consideration of the idea of time came from all of a sudden realizing on my third book that trauma was the threshold that I was normally concerned by in my work that in the in the lives of my characters, trauma was was acting as um, a moment of change and a moment of literal supernatural capability. And Parakeet, I think so far has been the graduation of that idea and that feeling. So I worked as a biographer of people living with traumatic brain injury. And that was the first time that I was able to hear countless stories of people whose memories were in some cases, wiped clean, in some cases, completely compromised by trauma, by by violence. And I was in this rare position of being able to see the common trends and the common feelings that they would have. I think I worked on something like 24 cases and would... Always be surprised and moved by the fact that each person I was speaking to who had experienced TBI felt that they were completely alone in these feelings. I would tell them about other clients, um, you know, anonymously and that the feelings they were having were shared. And that would be an enormous surprise for them. Like other people have experienced this too. And they were so alienated and isolated in this horrifically transformative experience that um, it also taught me how time functions in traumatic situations and how it can feel like it collapses or rewinds or stops for sometimes an extended period of time. And to render that literally on the page was getting as close as I felt like I could to being honest about what violence, what trauma can do to someone's understanding of both memory and time. You know, it lands on that. Level It lands on the level of, of that feeling of durational pain and like you're able to, like everything is permeable. I mean, depression is, is, um, a big example of that as well with what it, with how it, with how it bends and expands and diminishes time. So I was thinking about all of these things as I was putting the bride through all of these, (laughs) these terrible episodes. How did you come to have that job? The lawyer who I worked for was an enormous fan of writers. They were his heroes. And he reasoned very rightly that juries were more compelled by the human story than they were about, than they were from. A list of ailments on a page or on a medical chart. So, this lawyer originated this position, this biographer position, and then looked for a writer, specifically a fiction writer, who could fill it. Now, I'm having trouble remembering exactly how I was put in touch with him, but I can tell you that our interview was entirely about Mary Gateskill. And <laughs> I hadn't actually read Mary Gateskill. But I am someone who can somewhat capably have a conversation about a book I haven't read. So somehow I managed to do it. I got the job and I started. I had no training and no preparation. And I was entering a field of tremendous pain and loss. Um, and he was very much testing to see if I could handle it in that interview and said to me, I'm hiring you because. I know that you're able to see the conversation going on around the conversation and not just the one that's being had. So he was really, he was really intuitive and had a great sense about things like that. So that's how I got the job.
3: Was that sort of your first experience coming into contact with people who'd had traumatic brain injury? Was it a totally new realm of, (laughs) realm of life
2: for you? A bit. Specifically TBI, yes, my mother worked for 40 years at a facility for people with severe mental impairment. so severe severe the the worst cases of um, of special needs. And so I had grown up with a particular insight into disability and I think that, I've always kind of informally been an interviewer. I've been, I've always been very curious about how other people lived, not nosy. I'm actually, I I can't stand the idea of nosiness. I'm not a nosy person, but very curious about how everyone else was doing it. I think because I grew up in a very, very sheltered, sheltered, um, protected space. I wasn't allowed to go out much. I was grounded all the time. My mom was raising my brothers and I by myself. And so put rules in place of her presence because she was working a lot. And so I was always just wondering and wondering and imagining how everyone else was doing it and what everyone else was doing. And so that curiosity was, led me to just be a student of humans and a student of everyone, coupled with the inherent knowledge that not everyone has the same level of ease on the physical level as everyone else. I feel like that is something that too, too few people know and understand. Not everyone can walk up a flight of stairs without tremendous pain. Not everyone can lift their four-year-old child. Not everyone can have a child. And so my mother's work opened that door for me at a very young age. And um, I think that if I am empathic at all now, if I am in any way a person who who deeply cares for others, it's because it's because of her work and, and the way she explained it to me.
3: I'm wondering how that awareness awareness increased for you after and through talking to these twenty something people who were experiencing traumatic brain and was were there, was there like a, a totally new understanding of fragility or time that came to you from those conversations?
2: Absolutely, yes. I was so much more aware of the unseen pain, and I guess what I would call the unseen work that everyone is doing on a daily basis. And I would say that I already had a pretty good idea of that, but meeting person after person after person after person who had been injured and was navigating a memory that had been completely clear cut. Just, I think, I think made it so that I would never again lose sight of it, no matter what. So, I, I haven't done that work now for years, but I still, it's, it's in brain. It's ingrained.
3: Embrained
2: in is a word we is, should have. It is embrained. Why don't they call it embrained? That makes so much <laughs> more sense. <laughs> it is embrained in my brain. In your brain. And in a way that I think is helpful and then you know makes me a pest to those in my life who I'm constantly reminding of it too you know like you know it, someone may have ignored you they might not hear you they might not be able to to hear you or to process what you're saying in, in the same way and so yeah I mean I try as much as I can I try something that
3: really struck me about parakeet is the way that it's surreality or it's I don't know. Yeah, let's 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 say it's surreality. Um felt so truthful about it, it somehow felt like really being inside a mind even though so much of what's happening is not um realist.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you for saying that because I would absolutely I I would actually say that it's more realist than than realist. Um because it's super realist. It's like super mundane. It's just directly and literally and brusquely rendering the feeling as it is and just directly in a straight ahead way describing what it feels like to encounter violence, interpersonal violence and mass violence. And to and what that does to one's senses, what that does to one's hearing and, and understanding of time. So the surreality to me is, is being the most honest ab- about human life. Um, it's just making the metaphorical literal. Well, there's, there's the second big
3: portal. I mean, there are a lot of portals in this book, but the other mm-hmm. big kind of framing <laughs> portal in this book is that it takes place in the week before a wedding, Right, and I was curious what if that if that was also drawn from something that you had experienced in your your own life or if it like why why that was the framing
2: device that you
3: wanted to use here.
2: It is funny, I always forget that it's about a wedding, and that a wedding <laughs> is seen by so many as transformational or transcend transcendental um yeah, I mean, well, I have been married hundreds of times, like the bride. <laughs> And I do feel like it is it is an institution that I have had ambivalent feelings about my whole life, because it just never it was one of those things that you are supposed to associate so much divine feeling around, and yet it seems like it could only it could and I'm talking about weddings here, not not marriages. It could only do it could only underperform (laughs) for all of the expectations that people place on it. It's just absurd. Like weddings are just so surreal and absurd. If you, if you look at them from my perspective and so, and also it's nice to set a clock in fiction and the week before a wedding Kind of puts us all on the same page as far as our collective understanding of what the rituals would be leading up to a wedding and then what the ritual of a wedding would be in this scenario. So in order to like rarefy what I needed to rarify in the book, which is essentially everything, um, it helped to root it in the collective understanding of how important a, a wedding is, you know.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean and it d- the thing about the week before a wedding is that it is a common enough time for every every relationship in one's life to somehow suddenly be heightened. Um, <laughs> like the there's like that joke that like every like all of the shit in every re- you know all of your close relationships comes straight to the sur- you know like all exactly. the all the dynamics, all the history, everything comes straight to the surface like around around the wedding. Um, and, and that's something that this character really goes through. Like what's sort of ironic is that the, the, the plot hinges around this, you know, she's, she's about to be married and that's somehow maybe going to be a transforming experience. But what actually happens is that there are huge transformations and portals and events that happen in her understanding of time in her understanding of, you know, The real in her relationships with her mother, she becomes her mother, you know, like there's all this stuff that happens um, that's transformative that happens in advance of the wedding. um, And the wedding is just sort of, I I like that you're calling it a ticking clock because that it is, it's Mm -hmm. like this thing that we're just moving toward, um, but Mm -hmm. all the, all the actually transforming stuff happens before that.
2: Exactly, and in that way, it's a misdirection as well. So the wedding acts as a misdirection in that I like the nature of upending the expectation of something we think we know. So, for example, um, and I'm going back to to your idea of thin places um, and your essay, I believe that was the the eponymous essay, thin places Mm -hmm. of thinking of these places where, you know, the scrim grows thin and and how many different ways in which that could happen. The week before a wedding is a week where you're assuming that at the end of that week will be a wedding. So that is an enormous expectation that is super fun to upend as a fiction writer. And I noticed that I pick these days and dates and rituals that like my first novel, 2 A.M. at the Cat's Pajamas, was set mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve Eve. So a day where no one expects anything magical to happen. It's just a couple of days before Christmas. It's known in reference to the day that is important, which is Christmas. It is the mm-hmm. eve of the eve of Christmas. The week before wedding is also a place in which nothing magical is supposed to happen. The magical thing is supposed to happen at the end. That is an enormously rich place to then put a magical thing. And I really like the idea of upending a reader's expectation in that way. The wedding is, is incidental. The dinner party is, is incidental. The the thing itself is incidental what is what becomes what becomes like the thing of the thing of the thing the heart of the heart of the heart (laughs) is is when you were focused on the thing you thought and the actual thing hits you on the other side of the of your intuition and that to me is really fun (laughs) it's just plain fun (laughs) And,
3: and so much of what happens, of what you sort of chose to put in that, that space before the thing you're supposed to be looking at has to do with something you were talking about earlier, which is um, trauma and the aftermath of trauma and the way that right. that um, trauma, its aftermath, its healing, its r- recurrence and the way mm-hmm. that, you know, something that trauma seems to kind of – constantly create it, it like throws you out of time and creates you uh, puts you into this place of revisitation this circling and circling and circling mm-hmm. um uh is is also very like you've you've you layered two different kinds of rich time like trauma time mm-hmm. and pre you know pre-event time um and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about why trauma and it's and the way that it reorients us to time and space feels like a thing that you want to be working on and working in. Why is that where your writing lives right now?
2: Because it's important, I think, to voice some of what some people go through. It's important to me. It's important both personally and just as a general idea, um, because I worry that only the biggest and strongest and loudest and boldest have the voice, and because I am not interested in being a pundit online, so I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't tend to grab the microphone and and write long threads about how I feel about things how I express myself has always been through writing. And so that is what I have. And if I'm going to do that, I think it would be served best if I also was trying to put forth what I think actually matters. And so um, I have been, I am a, person who has experienced intergenerational domestic violence. And that has also acted as a portal to it is it has given me access to the tenderest of human Capacity in all sorts of different ways. And it has just it irrevocably opened me up to be able to see things that I will never be able to close my eyes to. Trauma is in my work because trauma has been in my life, and because some of the people closest to me have also been marked in their depths by different violences. And I I wanted to it's so rare that I that I read something that does it the way I feel it should be done. And so I, I'm I'm trying to do it. The bride has been injured, and injury doesn't always show up the way you think it will. And it doesn't in her. She's looking for family. Family doesn't manifest or show up the way you think it will. And in my life it hasn't. And so in addition to you know the portals of of trauma and friendship, I would also say I'm always looking to construct alternative ideas of family as well. And so the central relationship in the novel is the bride and and her sibling. Mm-hmm. And that arrived, Simone arrived. And that was the book. As soon as she showed <laughs> up, I was like, here you are. And, the tra- and to me, there's nothing more transcendent than a conversation with, with someone with whom you share a profound affinity. And that's why their conversation to me is the is the central heartbeat of the book. It changes everything. That conversation is the one-way gate. She will never again be able, the bride will never again be able to go back to the person who said she would marry this man who she clearly doesn't love and who clearly doesn't deserve her. And um, the vehicle of that movement is talking... To, just
3: alone you said something earlier about how wanting it to be wanting someone to write these things as you think they should be as they should be written or as it should be done um, how do you think it should be done like what are your hopes for how uh, how this kind of Material should be written about or conversed about?
2: Well, one thing I notice about anything I study is that it normally manifests in a way that is the more you learn, the more you find out about the idiosyncrasies of whatever it is. And I feel like I've read the same story over and over again about, you know, um, or maybe it's just been told in the same way. And I think what I'm trying to do is make the perhaps mundane experience of injury or violence to make it seem as um, glimmering in a way that, that it can be when you're a veteran of it. So the book also talks about, you know, being a novice to injury and growing into being a veteran of it as well, which is very much a thing. And, you know, even that idea, I didn't know before I worked with people with traumatic brain injury. But it made, of course, it made such sense that years after being injured, you would have become a master of your own injury in certain ways, or hopefully you would be. But I had never, but before I spent time and researched and studied and interviewed, that was was an aspect of injury that I had never considered. So things like that. The farther into this is this is um, a quote that a professor said to me that I think about a lot when I when I write the farther into the true self you go, the less like everyone else you look. And I find that, you know, when I'm getting something right, when it feels honest in fiction, that's when people are most likely to tell me it's weird. It feels weird, and your work is so weird, and your people are so weird, and they do weird things, and and I feel like yes, thank you. Yes, life is weird. People, your eyes are open. Yeah, (laughs) people are so strange. I'm not even telling you half of it. You know, so I don't know. I think the I think revising toward the weird is something. I would like to see more just in general and more respect for things that venture outside realist storytelling. Um, I'm always a fan of something that, that tries to reinvent a form.
3: Yeah. God, I love that. I I think about that too a lot as somebody who feels, I th- I think, um, a lot of, I think I acutely feel like the social pressure of, um, being, of, seeming, of seeming or thinking in ways that are not weird. And yet the weird is the thing that I like the best about myself <laughs> mm-hmm. and about other people and about the world. And it's mm-hmm. the thing that I like best in writing. And so that push and pull between um, writing the world or life or myself or whatever in the way that one is expected to write the stories of what is true. And then the much to me, truer and weirder way of writing those things um, is a tension that, that I guess I feel like I live in a lot as a writer and I am ex like excited by always writers who, um, want to embrace the weird because it's, it's, it feels true. Like people are extremely, if they're honest with themselves they're ex they themselves are extremely weird. The people who are saying, God, your characters are so weird. You know,
2: what you're saying is so meaningful to me. Thank you for saying that. And and it just shows you how ridiculous and useless and arbitrary the word weird is. I use that word because it is the quickest way to explain to others what I mean. But, um, but when I'm talking to other, you know, surrealist folks, you know, what's weird to us is not weird to other people and vice versa. And so you're, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. They, everybody's weird. You just have to pay attention, and, and that and that is for sure. And I also, I love that you're saying this because you and I have a lot of shared interests, uh, at least on the page. Um, your essay, Thin Places, and the way um, in which you you spoke about the people who um, were having those transversal operations and mm-hmm. Pando, the the, tree? the forest yes the quaking aspens uh-huh. um i in september for my birthday in the speaking of thresholds in the um period of time between the two surges in new york i went on a road trip and one of the goals was to see pando and to sit um to sit in that forest i read about it when i was a little girl and I had no idea what to expect and I'm not going to say too much because just so you have space to have your own experience there. But one thing I was not prepared for was the way it sounded to sit in the middle of it and to hear it, it breathe Um, Mm. or what sounded like it's, it's noises. It's, it's breathing. That was some, and I, and I went and I, I thought, You know, I wasn't married to any kind of I didn't I didn't think that a UFO would land. I didn't think they would talk to me. I was kind of like open to I'm gonna sit there and maybe something cool will happen, maybe it won't, but I I wanna see it. I think it would be cool to see and, and um it was at once it wasn't as heavy as I thought it would be, the forest itself, because I guess quaking aspens themselves, it's like there was a lot of light there, there was a lot of air. It was a forest that let in a lot of the sky. And so Mm -hmm. it had a light touch. I, 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 that's the only way I can think of to describe sitting there. And, and then I heard the rustle of the leaves and, but I heard this or perhaps I intuited, I was sensing (laughs) it, the, uh, the observational quality of these trees who I guess, you know, get looked at a lot. And the idea of the, individual inside the collective, um, is, is something I'm writing about in the book I just turned in. And, and it is, it is both of those things at the same time. It is at once the individual and, and the group. And then, you know, they're all male, like the clone Mm -hmm. that is this, this trembling Aspen is a male tree. So you are essentially in a forest of men or, you know, one man, depending on how you see it. So I was thinking of, (laughs) I was thinking of that too. And, um, yeah, the metaphors abound, but I really, I am going to ask you, I would love to talk to you about it after, after you experience it, since we've both written about it. Yeah. I would
3: love that. Wait, but tell me why. Yes, I will. I'll I'll call call you up and we can talk about it. (laughs) But why, why is Pando, how did you get interested in Pando? Why was that something
2: that was fascinating to you? I can't even tell you where I read the idea of this, but I was little. I read maybe a paragraph about this forest that was essentially one tree, this forest of one tree in Utah which at the time, growing up in Philadelphia, would, could have been Saturn for all I knew about <laughs> anything at all. Utah, this magical place called Utah. And I wrote it down. There is a place in Utah where it's a forest of one tree and I've just never stopped thinking about it. And so when I was putting together this road trip in September, I thought, okay, well, it would help to have a goal. Where do I want to be on my actual birthday? and i was like oh could you imagine anything more beautiful than than being in a forest of one tree that you that you read about years and years ago and so um that's what i did it is it is just endlessly expansive that metaphor it captures the imagination it's interesting that it captured both of ours too for similar reasons and to sit in the middle of it is I, I just felt nothing but grateful. And to have driven from New York to this forest that is the largest organism. Because also, too, it's, 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 it's considered to be, I think, still the largest organism the larges- on the planet. Yeah, the largest living thing. The largest living thing is a forest.
3: Did, did the experience of going to visit Pando... Um, change this book you're writing or make its way into this book that you're
2: writing about the individual and the collective? Uh, yeah, it, 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 it did. Uh, the book that I just turned in is about, is the entire lifespan of an extraterrestrial girl who grows up in Philadelphia. And it's essentially like the notes that she takes on human beings and sends back to her superiors <laughs> on her planet. And... Um, you know, throughout the book, you learn more and more about her planet and, and her planet's inhabitants. And one of the things she shares is that on her planet, they have evolved past the idea of a body. They've evolved past Whoa. the idea of an individual. And so they're like this multi-souled collective cool, trembling Aspen (laughs) sense of intuition that she's, you know, faxing back her crude notes about, you know, earthly humans too. And so I've been reading a lot of Carl Sagan who knew that if we were ever contacted by extraterrestrials, they would be so far advanced, so far beyond where we are now that they would have to speak very slowly. And so the idea of you know evolving past the idea of the solo individual at all. Um, I was very much thinking about when I was reading Carl Sagan, and she, the the narrator of the story, her name is Adina, the alien. Adina reads about Pando, Pando, and for obvious reasons is drawn to it as well because it's like the physical representation of the family and the people that she so desperately misses on her planet. And then also, and I'm sure this isn't lost on you either, you know, as we refine our understanding of gender and pronouns in, in like the common discourse, the idea of um, one person containing multitudes it, it it should be to me. It like should be a given. It makes so much sense, and so like that's something I've been thinking about a lot too, and and works its way into the book that we are all, in essence, a they, and so her people are a they, and it's something that that she considers too that she herself is also a they. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it actually touches on the question that I was going to ask you, which is mm-hmm. whether or not you see this book you're just finishing. As in some ways, marking evolution from or a, a, f- a furthering of some of the ideas you were working on in Parakeet, but that's a, that's one really use, useful and interesting example because um, there is a trans character in Parakeet, and, yes. and and the way that you write about that character, um, a, like, I, was striking to me because it 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 sort of encompasses an idea of multiplicity. Of mm-hmm. their being, of their having been, you know, uh, not, not quite like one person changing, but one person who is, who is many. Right. Yes.
2: Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> doesn't that just make intuitive sense that, that, I, I don't know, I, a lot of um, what is being discussed is so, I'm not of you know, the right words to describe this, but um, Simone's experience and, and enabling Simone to tell her own story on the page, um, yeah, was very much part of just me thinking about some of these, about some of these things. You know, she is a she, she is a they, um, and how, you know, we all are in a way. And so Beautyland, which is the next novel, um, Beautyland is is very much taking up the baton of that experience. But oddly enough, you know how like fiction writers, their first novels are supposed to be all about their lives. It's kind of like a common thing that said like the semi-autobiographical first novel. I skipped Mm -hmm. that. Unfortunately, like I skipped it and went straight to just like fictional as hell, and so this fourth novel, Beauty lands is actually the closest I've ever gotten to 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 doing that. So I was like, okay, well at least I did get to it. So Beautyland is more, you know, how it was actually like for me to grow up as as a young alien, um, as a young alien on Earth.
3: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?